Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to episode 93 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my life dream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by a music legend, singer-songwriter, composer, record producer, Rod Argent. We're going to talk about his career spanning more than 50 years, creating those classic songs. We're talking time of the season. She's not there. Tell her no. That's just a few of them. After the zombies, he formed the band Argent, who'd had some huge hits in the 1970s. Things like Hold Your Head Up and God Gave Rock and Roll to You. He was part of the Ringo Starr All-Star Band and recorded with The Who, Chris Rea, Roger Daltrey, Paul Carrick, even Andrew Lloyd Webber. Paul Weller calls the zombies' second album, Odyssey and Oracle, his absolute favourite. And he's not alone. It regularly features in those greatest albums of all time lists in Rolling Stone magazine, Mojo, Enemy, etc. So we'll dig into that. And Rod has plenty of Paul Weller-related stories to tell, and he even played on the album True Meanings in recent years as well. So we're here all about that. Let's get into it. Rod Argent, thanks for joining me. Great pleasure to be here. Now, you're squirreled away in your studio, making magic at the moment? Well, yeah. Well, I, I hope we've just finished making magic because with this ridiculous, you know, two and a half years that we've just all been through, and particularly with the way that recently we've liked to go back to recording which is to try and get everybody in the same room at the same time so things aren't just layered and done in a more mechanical way so that people can hear absolutely at the instant what everyone else is playing we're always with Colin doing a guide lead so that we can relate to what he's doing at that particular moment and he can relate to what we're doing going back really to the very earliest times that we used to record because there is a certain magic about having that cross collateralization going on and that's been particularly hard particularly because our bass player now is in Denmark so we have to get him to fly over and we've had to abort two or three times we're just about to go on tour for an American tour we've got two American tours this year and the first one is just about to start to get back to your original question about the recording, we've just finished an album. I know one always gets excited about the album one's just doing, but I feel, um, I mean, I've I, I usually write most of the material and I've, I've written nine songs on, on this particular album. I think they're some of the best songs I've ever written. The guys all sound great and are playing great. So I'm very, very excited about it. And we've had to try and book in time to get the thing mastered now with one of my favourite mastering engineers in America. It's very exciting. Um, really exciting. This, yeah, really exciting. Because it's not like we get a new Zombies album very often, right? Well, it tends to be about every four or five years. But the last album um, still got that hung. To my complete amazement, we were actually on tour and someone said, 
can you take a phone call? And I said, well, who, who's it from? And they said, from Billboard. And I said, yeah, of course. You know, so I took the phone call. He said, we just wanted to let you know that as the zombies, for the first time in 50 years, you've got an entry into the Billboard Top 100 album sales. We were only in it for three to four weeks. But I mean, nevertheless, it was fantastic to do that with new material. I think the material on this, this new album is better than that. So I'm really, really hoping that we can keep that going. Things in America have been going on an upward curve for us over the last particularly eight or nine years. It's extraordinary, actually. I mean, when Colin and I first went over to the States about 20 years ago now, or 21 years ago, it was just for fun. Again, Colin and I had to actually subsidize the original tours over there as a reincarnation, but we just about broke even, so that was okay, and it was cool. And we were 20, 21 years younger then. <laughs> <laughs> but we enjoyed it. Outside of New York and Chicago and Los Angeles, where we did always have big audiences. We were playing to, oh God, I remember one gig in Georgia. We played to about 12 people. But do you know, play Georgia now and anywhere down south and we get rammed audiences and we play big places now. And of course, we were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2019, which was um, unlooked for, really. It was fantastic. Things have been great in America. And it's one of those things that when, when we're in the UK, we're probably less successful here than anywhere else in the world, you know, <laughs> but it's just one of those things but anyway you know I'm, I'm really really not complaining i mean the business has been very kind to us because a bit like paul i've got to know paul a bit actually over the last well since 2008 that was the first time i met him when we played we got together and for the very first time ever we did a performance with all the original musicians plus our current band as well so that we could have every harmony and every overdub that was on the original odyssey and oracle album it's pretty well known that paul has, has often said that it's his favorite album of all time the thing that amazes me with artists like yourself and with paul you have this similarity in the sense that you're always wanting to push forward. I mean, this is 60 years pretty much now in the industry for yourself. And you're not just relying on the greatest hits. You want to keep driving forward, want to create new material, new music, yeah? That's the only reason I'm doing it. That's the only reason I ever got back together with Colin. Apart from the fact that um, we've stayed friends all our lives, it was just simply because it's a way of continuing to create. And I think it's a huge privilege to be able to actually get out on stage with stuff that we've just created mm. and get a real response from the audience from it. You know, I've got nothing against vintage bands who only play their old material. That's fine. I, honestly, I'm not putting them down at all. But for us, for me, that means nothing. I'm, I'm, I love playing the old stuff. I do. But always within the context of being able to include the things that we've just written and just recorded and we're equally excited about and to get the energy back from the audience at the same time, which often has a very young component to it, unbelievably. We obviously have people of, of our age in the audience and people of all ages, and that's fantastic. But we always have a young component and we always have young bands who come back to us. Late. And it's very invigorating and very rejuvenating. And honestly, I'm, I'm sure Paul will tell you the same thing as well. When you're on stage playing, there is absolutely no difference in your energy levels to when you were 18 years old and the energy that you're getting back from the audience. And I don't think there's another profession in the world that will give you that. Yeah, I love it. I love it. This, that's such a lovely sentiment, isn't it? Obviously, this is the Paul Weller fan podcast, so we're going to weave in some of these stories as we go. I'd love to understand yeah. when, it, when it was you first became aware of Paul Weller and his music. Well, the, the first time I became aware of Paul and his music was with the jam. Basically, I didn't like the punk movement at all, but the one band that I did really, really like was the jam. And uh, I always remember hearing start and remember thinking my god that's the same sort of feeling i got when i heard taxman yeah you know it had a very <laughs> similar groove to taxman he's hitting with all the energy of someone who's just coming on the scene and with all, all the huge energy you have when you first come onto the scene and that energy comes over beautifully and i thought about i thought the band were great all great players actually to, to my ears it was hugely original in their own way and they had their own stamp completely but it embraced the early parts of the 60s, particularly, that, that I loved. And I've always had a real love for the very early Beatles. I mean, I, I love them all through their career, obviously. But I've always loved that huge joy and energy in their playing that they had when they were really young. And I thought the jam replicated that. I remember that track start. And obviously, that's entertainment, going underground, some of the big hits they had. But they all played great. I think they had real musicianship in what they were doing. But that, all that, you know, energy and drive of real youth and, and wanting to get out that huge 
teenage energy that you have when you first become musicians and you can't replicate that. That was the first time I became aware of Paul. You mentioned that teenage energy. I think I'm right in saying you were roughly the same age, both of you, when you started in your bands and you started to release records and get record deals. I think you were like 18, 19, weren't you? When we first got a record deal, yeah, I was 18 and she's not there. It was only the second song I'd ever written, really. But we actually started in the songs as a, as a semi-pro band three years before that. So in 1961, was when we had our very first rehearsal. It started out with, I was the singer and I wasn't going to play piano at all. I thought that wasn't very hip at that time. You know, so we're going to be a guitar band. I met Colin on the first rehearsal. I was desperate to form a band and I got a group of players together within two weeks after hearing our guitarist at school playing in a folk club and just thinking that he had a nice groove to his playing, even though he was just playing folk acoustic things. And I have to say, actually, just off the top of my head, I think Paul is a very fine acoustic guitarist. He's got a really great groove and great musicianship naturally about how he plays. And when you write a song like She's Not There, yeah. do you know immediately you're onto something? Did you think, because that's still a song that gets played and played and played these days, isn't it? You know, The airplay for that track is ridiculous. There are two things about She's Not There. Firstly, I would say that with the, you know, and this is something I've often said, actually, with the naivety and ignorance of youth you don't know about any of the pitfalls at all you soon learn about them, but you don't know any when you start you think yeah i can write a song that's as good as the beatles and you know and you just write it and then i thought yeah colin will sound great singing it and we'll record it and it's going to sound fantastic and it's going to be a hit all over the world and unbelievably it was (laughs) (laughs) if only everything was so easy as that right (laughs) well exactly well you know, in this business, when you get a hit, it's the easiest thing in the world. And when you haven't got a hit, it's the hardest. It's really a weird thing. I've since learned that you can go into a recording studio and you can get a sound that's not good, an engineer that's not really top quality. And for some reason or other, the band doesn't gel with how you hear it and you're not on the same page, etc., etc. And it just all falls apart. But it all went like magic with that first recording. It really did. And it went to number one in Cashbox, which was actually the biggest magazine at the time. In my, I, I remember the Beatles saying, we're number one in Cashbox. We were number one in Cashbox and about number two in Billboard, I think. Might have been three. I can't, I, I can't remember. We even made the nine o'clock news. I remember phoning up my, my mum. I still lived at home. I was just 19 years old and I was in America and I phoned home and that was a big deal in those days. It wasn't like now, how easy it is now. And she said, oh, you've just been on the nine o'clock news. And I thought, oh my God, what have I done? (laughs) (laughs) But uh, she said, no, you're the first band after the Beatles with the self-written song from England to ever top the American charts. And I thought, wow. And it just made me think that Eight years before, my whole world, along with many other English rock and roll musicians, my whole world had been completely turned around by hearing Elvis sing Hound Dog. And then for three years, and I've still got these records on my jukebox now, I wanted the just that first three years worth of Elvis's records when he was on the Sun label and when he had that wonderful high black infused voice before he became a little bit of a parody of himself. I still think he sounds transcendent from those days. That's all I wanted to hear. But anyway, he seemed like a being from another universe, let alone planet. And I thought there's no way anyone in England could really have anything to do with this magic but I have to get a little bit of English version of it, you know. And so we we formed the band. And then I, many years later, I learned that Elvis had three of my songs at that time on his jukebox. That was something which was like magic to me. And it still feels like magic to me. It was like a charmed time. And then because of the way we were managed in the UK, they put out absolutely the wrong second single. None of us wanted that single to go out. Um, we thought it was very limp. And it wasn't a hit at all. And that sort of killed things in the in the UK for us. But in the US, they then didn't put that out. As a follow-up, they put out Tell a No, which was a top five record in itself in America. So that was a good follow-up in, in the States. And then we started to have a better deal then. But we were on tour with many great artists, a lot of great soul artists, some of them our heroes. We were on stage with Patti LaBelle, with Benny King, the Drifters. We thought they were going to hate us, but they didn't. They really took us to their hearts. It absolutely amazed me. We used to have night after night, we used to have chats with Patti LaBelle and she used to tell us about this new kid on the block, Aretha. You've got to listen to her. You've got to hear her. You know, and she'd talk about the music in the black churches where she grew up. And it was just like magic, you know, for 
a 19-year-old kid, it was just absolute magic. And I had a huge enthusiasm for music. Even at that time, I wanted to stay in music all my life. And I'm sure that's something that Paul feels the same way about. Having got to know him a bit, I'm sure that he feels the same way about music as, as I did. We probably had a different way of growing up and growing up in different places but you know I do feel things in common with Paul actually I'm going to read you a bit from this is BBC News back in 2010 I found this and, okay. and and Paul's mentioned this so many times over the years and how much he loved that second album at the time he said the Zombies made one of the all time greatest records in Odyssey and Oracle it came out in 1968 and by the time it came out I think they'd split no one bought it at the time it was a fantastic record all of the albums that get some kind of recognition from that period they always seem to get overlooked the first time I heard it was in the mid 70s and it just blew my mind. When was the first time you heard that Paul liked this? Because it's not that everybody was shouting about that album, was it? Not at all. I mean, I don't think I really knew that for many, many years. And then uh, someone told me the story about Paul buying the album for people that hadn't heard it and he would go out and buy it for them. You know, it was many, many years later. We thought it was the best we could do at the time. And it was a very important album for us because when we knew we were going to break up, Chris and I said, we have to do one album and produce it ourselves because we have to get our own ideas of how our songs, for better or worse, of how our own songs should sound because they were not transmitting to singles by that time. They just, in our mind, we were so disappointed with how each record was turning out because we'd be very excited about it and we go in to record it. Some of the demos we preferred to the you know, the final recordings. So we recorded it ourselves and we thought it was the best we could do. We really did. But we weren't expecting very much from it. But there again, the, our reason for doing it was that we really, really wanted to get our material out there in the way that we felt it should be heard rather than say we have to, you know, just earn a buck by getting a hit record. We never, ever went in with a song and said, Okay, what's, what's, what's a big hit at the moment? Oh, we've got to get to the chorus in 30 seconds, you know, otherwise nobody would play. We never did that. We've never done that all our lives. We still don't do that. We always just get ourselves excited about a musical idea and follow it through. And again, I think Paul does that too. You know, I mean, when he broke up the jam, I mean, there was huge commercial mileage still in it, but he wanted to spread his wings and see what he could do in different areas of rock and roll or popular music. You know, so again, I, I feel a little bit of something in common with Paul with that as well. In the short term, that can often be the worst thing for you because people rail against it and they say, oh, this is terrible. This is not what they should be doing, et cetera, et cetera. But if you do it honestly and you get something worthwhile, then in the fullness of time, people sometimes discover it and, and the reality of it comes through and then it can become the biggest hit and, and that's what happened with time of the season time of the season was the last gasp even though al cooper was desperate to have it released and he was a, an a r man by that time with cbs with clive davis they didn't think it was commercial and they said okay all right okay we'll put it out but this is the last thing from that album then we you know then we'll have to move on and they put it out and for two or three months nobody played it except one guy in Idaho, in Boise, um, there was um, there was a DJ who's only recently been identified, apparently. Brilliant. I can't remember who, who he is. Brilliant. But he played it and played it. And in the way, in those days, I mean, everyone's used to hits. You have a two-week window to get a hit these days. But mm. in those days, things could be slow burners. And he played it and played it. Gradually, like stones in a pond, the ripples went out and people started to turn, get turned on to time of the season and, and suddenly it caught fire and it raced up the charts. And again, it was number one in cash books. And strangely enough, it became number one 50 years later to the day was when we got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So that was a very weird happenstance that, you know, that's what happened. But anyway, and in the long term, it worked out for us because we got something that we hadn't made any concessions about. I mean, for God's sake, it was now with two long solos in it, you know, a solo in the middle. <laughs> we opened with a prison song. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it worked out for us in the end. And I mean, it was only a little while that the album was released after the Beach Boys Pet Sounds. And of course, the Beach Boys Pet Sounds did better than ours in the top 100 at, at that time. It wasn't a big hit. But nowadays, it sold millions. And Odyssey and Oracle still 
these days, year after year, sells more than it ever did, even when time of the season was number one. It has had longevity. And it's always in those lists, isn't it? So you read like the Rolling Stone magazine, 500 greatest albums of all time, the Guardian Mojo, 100 greatest albums ever made. I mean, that's remarkable. But it was a, like you say, it was a real slow burn. Was there a time when you realised that actually this was a popular album? How soon later was that? It was a long time later. <laughs> I mean, we, we, I remember Chris Wyatt phoning me up it was at a point when his kids were at university. His three boys were at university. So he said, oh, Rod, you know, Odyssey and Oracle is, is becoming a real cult thing with young people at university. And I said, oh, yeah. And I remember putting the phone down and saying to my wife, no, it's not. But it was. And it took a long time to sink into me that that, that could possibly happen. But do you know what now? I mean, just before the last gig we did before lockdown stopped us being on the road was in Madrid. Obviously, not all the audiences are like this, but we played. It wasn't a huge venue. It was a club, but it, there were about 400 people there. It was a rammed club, really, basically. And I don't think there was anybody there over the age of about 28. And to my complete amazement. And then, of course, I love those gigs when they occasionally come along because you get such energy coming up mm. from the audience. And not only were they singing some of the new tracks back to us, singing along from Still Got That Hunger, our last album, but when we were playing any track from the early Zombies catalogue, these kids of, well, the kids in my mind, who were sort of 22, 23 years old, were singing along with every word to th this stuff. And it was just ridiculous. And, and lesser known things like, I mean, I know it's been in a film, but the way I feel inside this really gentle a cappella ballad from an early Zombies album, we always finish with a huge dose of energy with, would you hold your head up with a long extended solo, as you, you often find in our thing. And then she's not there with all sorts of things going on in it. And that's probably about six or seven minutes long. Then we do God Gave Rock and Roll to You, uh, which was an Argent song initially before Kiss got their hands all over it. And then we finish off unexpectedly with just Colin and me doing a piano and voicing of the way I feel inside. And Colin was very wary about doing all this, as he always has been. He thinks we should end on a huge high. And I always say, no, no, let's leave them with a, a really gentle thought to bring everything down. And we did The Way I Feel Inside. And this whole audience was singing along with it. And he came off stage and said, my God, I can't believe that. Where have they heard it, for God's sake? <laughs> but anyway, they did. And, and uh, so, you know, so it's been... That, that's been great. Yeah, because I'm trying to think, because it's been in a couple of films, hasn't it? It was in a Steve Zizou film, The Life Aquatic. And then more recently, it it's been in Sing, which my, some of my kids will know that now. The animated yeah, yeah. film with Taron Egerton singing it as a gorilla. Oh, that's right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Obviously, with the album coming out and you splitting, you didn't get to perform that album live at that time, did you? Oh, no. no not until 2008. Um, it's a bit of a gap, uh, folks. A bit of a came gap. Came out in 1967. When Colin and I first got back together, late 99 or the year 2000, we, we only played a handful of gigs at that point. It really started up again very, very slowly. And Chris White used to come along. And then, first of all, we didn't play any zombies things at all. And then gradually, we realized that there were some zombies songs that we'd never played live ever. And I said to Colin, oh, that would be a bit of a rediscovery for us, you know, if we actually do it live. Yeah. And we've, ne we've never played them, so we started to play them. And in the end, we incorporated the name The Zombies with the current lineup. And Chris was a, a bit like this about it, first of all, Chris White. But then he, he got used to it. He said, I'll tell you what, he said, I don't mind talking. And he said, actually, he said, you're really helping to raise the profile of The Zombies, actually, because you're doing it for real. You're doing loads of energy and people are really responding. A lot of young, young people are responding as well. So he said, I think it's really good. He said, but I tell you what would make me feel totally happy. We've never played Odyssey in Oracle because we split up before we ever played it. He said, can we not just do one gig? And this is what we planned for 2008. And we did it at the Shepherd's Bush Empire, I think, and do it with the original players. So we had some rehearsals. And then on the night, I remember going in thinking, oh my God, this could be the worst night of my life because is it going to work? For God's sake, you know. <laughs> so the guy that was managing us at the time kept coming up until we stopped him and said, don't tell us anymore. He said, oh, Snow Patrol's in listening to you, you know. And then at one point, he said, I've just seen Paul Weller in the rain, in the line. Queuing up. Queuing <laughs> up. And I, and we said, oh, for God's sake, pull him in, you know. So, 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 so they did. And then we learned that Paul had bought tickets for all three nights because in the end, 
we sold out the first night in a very short amount of time, which amazed us, actually. And in the end, we had three nights. Paul bought tickets for all three nights. And then after the first night, he came backstage and he was very nervous that first time because I think he's got a real shyness about him as well. You know, it was lovely to meet him. That, that was the first time we met him. And he was, you know, hugely full of praise and everything. And... On the second night, he couldn't get there on the second night, even though he got tickets. But we had the delivery of this huge magnum of champagne from him. And then he came along again on the third night. That was the meeting of Paul. Right. That, that was the first time we'd met him. And I was really taken with his huge enthusiasm. And um, our bass player, Jim Rodford, who sadly died very recently, he was for 15 years on, on their real resurgence in America. And when they had come dancing, it went to number one. That was with Jim. And he, for 15 years, and on their biggest ever selling records in the States, he was a bass player. And Paul sought him out. You know, he knew all about Jim and he was asking about the kinks and working with Ray and everything and, and all that thing. He was absolutely lovely. You know, we were really knocked out, actually. And that's the first time I met Paul. And he said something which I totally agreed with. He said, that was fantastic. He said, it was really, really fantastic. He said, but don't do it too much. And I always felt that. In fact, I didn't really want to do it any more than those three nights. But everyone else, the pressure was great for the following year to, to take it around the country a little bit, which we did. For me, that started to lose a little bit of it. But and, and then we never thought, because it was such a big production, you know, because for the first time when we recorded Odyssey and Oracle, we had more tracks than the original sort of four tracks that we used to record. So what we would do, we, we didn't have much money, so we would prepare things really minutely and we'd know what we were doing. But then after we'd done that, and we normally recorded the track in about, an hour and a half or something. And then for the rest of the session, we had these extra two or three tracks that we could do anything spontaneous. And I remember with time of the season, I remember it started off with just a backbeat and, and that lovely, I mean, we, we had rehearsed the, the bass and the, and the tom-tom, boom, boom, boom. You know, we, we'd rehearsed that and, and that worked beautifully, but it was just boom, 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 boom. And the, and the snare doing that. And then as we came back in, I said to Hugh, do you know what? I said, I can hear a clap before each backbeat and a <sighs> just after it. Oh, I said, do you think it's worth trying? He said, go in there and try it. It was one take. We just went in, you know, so it went, ba da dum <sighs> and, and that became a signature of it, but we didn't think <laughs> anything of it. Yeah, brilliant. Those moments and, like that are so special. That's great. Well, I know. So we had that combination and we, on lots of the tracks, that sort of thing happened. And often with extra harmonies, like we'd worked out all the basic harmonies on Chris White's song Changes, which was very choral. But I heard a counterpoint line at the top and I raced in and did that. And Chris liked it. So he said, yeah, yeah, great. Keep it in, you know. And, and things like that were happening throughout. So it was that combination of minutely rehearsed, intensely re rehearsed stuff, and then a little bit of spontaneous something or other, which worked really beautifully. But it meant when we did it live, the other thing was, it's a well-known story, but John Lennon's Mellotron had been left in the studio from Sergeant Pepper, and I just jumped on it and played it all over Odyssey and Oracle without asking him. You know, I just, <laughs> I just did it. But then, of course, when we did it for real, we had to get another keyboard player and by that time we'd met Darian Sahanaja who was with the Brian Wilson band and we knew that he was a huge fan of Odyssey and Oracle he knew all the parts all the um, Mellotron parts so he played the Mellotron parts we got the current band to do the extra harmonies that we put in on top of the original harmonies so we had Oh, nine, ten people on stage. And for us at that point, touring in the States, bringing ten pieces over, having the extra transport and, and everything that's involved with it was very costly. So we didn't know if we could do it. But in the end, we got to the stage where we developed things and our management said, you can afford it now. Why don't we just do it? I said, oh, I don't know. You know, we've, we've done it. And he said, but not in America you haven't. You should do it. He said, let's make this Odyssey and Oracle's 50th anniversary year. He said, we'll do it this year and we'll never do it again. And I sort of conceded in the end and did that. But for me, that's done now. I'm very proud of it. I'm not sorry that we, we did it all. I just want to move on now. And Because as you said right at the beginning of the interview, it's the creating of new things that is really essential that feels vital to me you know feels like the reason that we start that was the reason we started this mm. you know way back in 1961 and it's the reason we, we still get excited about things now i remember well around the time of sonic kicks 
a lot of people were doing the albums, like you say, like playing back their albums in full bands like the Manic Street Preachers and Suede and stuff like that. And Paul said, I'm going to play my classic album in full. And it was Sonic Kicks. It was a brand new album. He played it at the Roundhouse. I think it was five nights in a row. But from start to finish, did that album. And you think, blimey, that's, that's ballsy, isn't it? <laughs> it is ballsy. It is ballsy, yeah. Did he do any of the, the old stuff as well? Yeah, so there was a little gap and then there was an acoustic set and then a little gap and an electric set with some of the old stuff as well. But yeah, the first, right. what would it have been, like 45 minutes was just the new album. And actually just on the, su- the Sunday night, the album wasn't even out. It came out on the Monday. So on the Sunday night. Wow. That, oh, yeah. But yeah, it was oh, brilliant. And I think you said, like you say, always pushing forward. There are a few like little connections around that time as well with Paul. So one was, there was a Simon Mayo Radio 2 session where he played Time of the Season. I don't know if, did you ever hear Paul's version? I heard it and I thought he did it absolutely beautifully. I loved it. Yeah. It's like when Dave Grohl did a version on a, a live album, I think, of, um, was it This Will Be Our Year? Uh, it, no, no, it was unexpected. You know, I don't listen to an awful lot of Radio 2, actually, but I happened to have that on and I heard it. I was just floored. I thought he did it beautifully. He's got such a, a musicianly sense. He really, really has. And, it, you know, it was just great to hear that. And it had all the bits in that you talked about, all the <sighs> and all that, didn't it? <laughs> Yeah. You can't really yeah. do it without that, I suppose, can you? Well, I suppose, yeah. And then we have to talk 2018. So Paul Weller, his 14th solo album, this absolute masterpiece, True Meanings. Oh, yeah. And you get to play with Paul. So here it is. I've got it here. I mean, look at this thing. I tell you what, getting the vinyl back again is such a special thing. Like an actual isn't record. It? Oh, my God. It's it, lovely, isn't it? it, re- it- do you know what? The rediscovery of a, a present generation of vinyl is fantastic. And, and I do it all the time. I stream things all the time. But when you stream things, because it's so easy, you tend to... Well, there are two things, really. If it's a track or a few tracks or a, a new album that comes out, you, you know, you'll stream it. And then you find yourself doing something else because it's just there. And it's just coming through and you don't have to do anything about it. So you get diverted. In the old days, it was such... A moment when you bought a vinyl album, and because it's only 20 minutes aside, couldn't mechanically do it more than 20 minutes. So you put the side on and you'd sit down and you'd open up, and in particular, it was a gatefold, and you'd find out who wrote each track, who the musicians were, and you'd have all this lovely artwork that you'd you know, enjoy. It became something really pleasurable, the experience in itself, and you devoted yourself to it. And the other thing is that often when you stream things, it's so easy to just go, oh, I'm not so fond of this track. I wonder what the next track's like. And you, you just do that. You know, when you play the album, you tend to play the whole thing. And sometimes the tracks that you like the least become your favorite tracks of all because they're slow burners. And then you hear everything within the context and the relationship of the whole album with itself. And that's very important as well. That context is so important. And a lot of young kids are rediscovering that now, and it becomes more of a special event because, you know, the release of a new album, a new vinyl album back in the Beatles days was massive. It was just, you know, you knew most of the population, if they could afford it, would be buying it and they'd be putting it on the record player and sitting down and giving their whole attention to the artwork and everything else that was there, you know, for the whole album. And these days, there's just so much competition for your attention and time. And I think there's a little bit of rediscovery of that happening. And I think that's absolutely great. Yeah, it's lovely. And I think you're right, because with the streaming, you don't see the musicians, you don't understand who's collaborated on those songs and who's you know, the co-writers. And even if we talk about the couple that are on there on True Meanings that you work with Paul on, you probably wouldn't know this, right, folks? You're listening to, you know, to The Soul Search as that album opener with a collaboration with Conor O'Brien from The Villagers, who's been on the podcast. But there you are on Hammond organ in the mix how did that come about well paul had been in touch with me sent me a few demos and said oh it'd be great for you to be involved in this in some way or other and i knew he was getting quite a few people involved in it and then i, I didn't think much more about it until he, he suddenly said well, look if you don't mind i'm sending you something over and i don't think in the end i'm not sure that he actually the ones that i ended up playing on i'm not sure if he'd sent me those or not i can't remember now actually but anyway when we got there, he said, I'd love you to play a bit of an organ solo at the end. So I just wandered over to the organ. And I thought, oh, my God, it, it's in the key of B, which is not not a great key for keyboards. You know? <laughs> I thought, oh, God, I hope I don't make a pig's ear of this. But it was fine. I really, really enjoyed it. And 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 I had a lovely morning there. It was, it was great. And then the other one, he fancied me playing a bit of Mellotron on white... White horses. White horses. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the thing is that you have to realise about Mellotron, it's it's odd. I think that it still sounds wonderfully effective, on, obviously, in Oracle, but it's often against a very bare track, so you just have a piano 
often. And then the Mellotron, and it's in a certain range, a certain pitch, certain key, and it has a long echo on it. If, if you just play it boldly without those elements, without those long echoes. I mean, this was the first time, the first sort of sampling ever, really. You have to remember that. I don't think it sounded quite like the people that were producing were expecting really you know it sounded much more ordinary but it's all to do with context with the Mellotron I find sometimes it works beautifully and, and other times it's not right at all and then I suggested playing a bit of piano which he wasn't thinking of at all but I ended up playing a bit of piano on the end of it and a bit of Mellotron you know it was fairly buried in the mix but it was I thought that was a lovely track as well actually White Horse I think was a lovely track mm. and, and I love the track the Soul Searches I think it sounds great Tom Hill I don't know if you know Tom so Tom is part of the current Weller band and he's on Keys okay. I chatted with him the other day and he said when they when they performed that album at the Royal Festival Hall they did it with yeah. Anna Peel and the orchestra he said he had to play that bit and he said bloody hell that was so hard he said <laughs> He's like, oh my God, it was so complicated. Oh dear. Tell him I'm sorry. (laughs) There's also Noel Gallagher plays on the White Horses one. He plays Space Hammond, which I don't know what that is, I'll be honest. Oh, really? Probably bass pedal Hammond. Using the bass pedals on a Hammond organ, you know, that people can play with their feet, but you could could get down there, kneel down and actually, you know, play it as if you were playing a keyboard, actually. I always remember Zoot Money once. Paul Williams, the bass player, who I, I got to know really well. This is way back in the early 70s or some, something like that. And, and Paul definitely liked to drink, uh, Paul Williams. And uh, he, he got a bit pissed one night and um, he went on stage. And I can't remember what happened. He couldn't get his bass to work or something. So he crawled under Zoot Money's legs on the hand <laughs> started playing the pedals you know? <laughs> i always remember seeing that which was very funny actually to see that and uh zoot was um a bit nonplussed by that but there you go i, I didn't realize that noel gallico actually did that yeah and i think it's but, like you say it's um not not everybody live in the studio obviously but they la- they're layering up stuff and building on yeah. stuff and taking snapshots of different pieces and and stuff i mean it's a lovely album i think it's really up there with paul's very best i love that album actually the other album i, I love paul's was many years before that was stanley road which mm. i thought was really great album oh of course an absolute classic and one and a favorite of lots of our listeners to this podcast i have to say it does get mentioned quite a bit and it's nice to hear paul play a few songs from that album including the title track on the most recent tour as well have you seen paul live is that something you've got to witness after uh, was it after i played on true meanings uh, i can't remember around that time it was probably after that he got the zombies to support him on a, a gig down in wales i think I forest know, i didn't know this oh wow oh, one of the forestry gigs right yeah, absolutely. And it was great. And I, that's the only time I've seen him live. I thought he was fantastic. I thought the whole band were absolutely fantastic. I always remember that night because I'd started using in-ear monitors. I mean, playing so many years in rock and roll without using in-ears. And Jim, bless his heart, the bass player who stood right next to me, was the loudest bloody player in the world. And it's <laughs> it done my hearing in. So I have to wear hearing aids now. But anyway, but I, I was wearing in-ears and I didn't have a, an amp. And then one of the leads came, came out of my in-ear monitors. And that's the only way I can hear. And it came about at the beginning of the solo in Hold Your Head Up. which is a really big moment for our our, our, our live gigs. And people normally go, you know, crazy about that. And so I was just doing it by sight, really. You know, I was thinking, I'll never forget that. But it was great. He played for about three hours, I think. We waited and watched the whole thing from the side of the stage. I thought Paul and the band were were fantastic. I thought he sang great. I thought he played great. At that point, I I hadn't realised that he played piano and keyboards as well. And he played really well. I thought it was a, a really... Really terrific gig he was great on stage and i'm guessing he was probably flip side he was probably at the side of the stage watching you guys right as well i think they they did watch it all i think yeah, yeah. and the whole band did i think yeah, yeah. it's funny you mentioned the in-ear monitors because the the band have started paul's band has just started using those on the last tour as well have they right yeah. and i guess it's a bit of a cheaper way of doing it as well so you're not having to lug you know loads of amps around it i would guess is part of the reason too i suppose well um i don't know in america for instance, we always rent amps at each gig, so we don't carry the amps with us. You know, so that doesn't make it all that much difference. Right. But from a sound man's point of view, it makes things much more manageable. The difficult thing is, if a camera crew filming the gig, they're not hearing anything on stage except the people that have got amps. So yeah. there's a lot of keyboard stuff on our on our gigs, and quite often 
I'd be in the middle of this sort of massive keyboard solo and the camera would be on the guitarist you know? <laughs> because they can't, cause they can't <laughs> hear anything coming out of the, you know, because the guitarist still has got a guitar amp because he, he says it's essential. You know, that's the downside of it. Funny, I, I think it that. was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, you know, it's part of modern life. We, I mean, we could spend hours talking about your incredible career. The amount of people that you've collaborated with as well is remarkable from The Who, Chris Rear. Paul Carrick. Andrew Lloyd Webber is something really cool. Like you're on the Cats and the Phantom of the Opera album and working um, as an arranger on stuff and a producer. You've had a pretty bloody amazing career, my friend. Well, it's been a long one. (laughs) 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 I think you've got to fill it with something. When I came off the road with Argent, I'd been on the road for about 12 years nonstop. And I got a young family and I hadn't seen the kids in the early part of growing up, you know, and, and I hated that really. And I still, that's something that I still feel badly about. I then decided that I would just take anything interesting that came along. I started working on the Who Are You album because Roger Daltrey had asked me to play on his solo album, One of the Boys. I did the whole album with him and he and he, he really liked what I did. And then he suggested that I should play on Who Are You? And at the time, they were going through a big political thing. When they recorded, um, I mean, Pete had done a wonderful demo of the whole album where he'd done everything. But when they actually recorded live, the track, Who Are You? I mean, it was recorded in about three hours, but we were actually recording for months because they were they were going through a lot of political maneuverings at that mm. point. And there would be loads and loads of, it, of meetings. And so there's a lot of hanging around. And, and it got to the point where I'd agreed to do an album playing keyboards on the Andrew Lloyd Webber Variations, which became a number one album. He'd written variations for his brother the cellist Julian Lloyd Webber with Gary Moore with Coliseum John Heisman Barbara Thompson and me and I was doing the keyboards and I'd agreed to do it and I remember saying to Pete I'm sorry Pete I've got to go now I've only done three tracks but I'm only credited on two of them I did actually do three I did Love Is Coming Down as well it was the first one I'd done but I, in the end you know, I, I, my name just got missed out on that I said I've got to do Andrew's album now I'm, I'm committed to it and he said, well, which album would you rather do? I said, it's not a question of that at all. It's a question of having said I'd do it. And, you know, the album's about to be recorded. And that became a number one album, Variations, in the UK. Not in the US, but in the UK. So that's how that one came about. At that time, I'd had enough of being on the road. So that year that I'd given myself to just do anything interesting sort of span out and span out. I ended up writing a lot of music for TV films and i wrote a couple of world cup themes for itv which got used for years on the big match didn't you write like the theme tune for it's all right on the night as well yes i did <laughs> then it's oh, brilliant it doesn't get it's not all right on the night quite so often now but you know it still gets paid and then after that i started producing other artists at my little studio in my previous house which is nowhere near as good as this studio. But we did the first Peter Van Hook, who was the drummer with Van Morrison for many years. We were great mates and and we became co-producers of Tanita Tikaram's first album, Uh which sold four million albums around the world. And that was all recorded in my little studio at Red House in Bedfordshire. She was great. What was the big song? A Good Tradition, wasn't it? Good Tradition was the first big hit. In Germany, she became the biggest selling female album of all time. Number one album. and, And also, the number one single was Twisted My Sobriety that was around the world that was the big single again not in America it didn't do anything in America but in Europe it was huge that was a small hit here I think it was number 18 or something that was my favourite track on the album actually anyway I found myself producing for about 12 years and then I suddenly got to the point where I thought I'm too selfish to do this because when you produce somebody else they want your attention for 24 hours a day quite rightly it's their big moment of producing their album particularly their first or second album, you know, and then you finish and then the next person comes along and they want the same thing. And I thought, I can't take any more of this. I want some of my own stuff again. And it just so happened that I met Colin around that time and we started playing on stage again. And to my amazement, I actually loved playing live again because it was so different. As I'd finished playing live with Arjun, we used to have to take our own PA. The actual gig seemed to be the last thing anyone thought of on the night. There were just sound problems and problems with the Hammond working and it was just a nightmare. And I thought, I can't take any more of this. But my cousin, Jim Rodford, the bass player, said, it's not like that anymore. I said to Colin, all right, I'll do six gigs. Just six gigs, no, no more. And I had such a ball that that 
that's turned into 21 years of working around the world, you know. <laughs> wow. Well, amazing. Well, look, so at the time of recording, you're literally what, days away from heading off to the States. Um, yeah. The zombies on tour again. Uh, will there be dates in the UK? Are we going to have anything planned this year, next year? There was a tour planned in the UK, which would have been the first one for ages. I'm, I'm not sure if anyone will come along in the UK because we haven't played here for so long, but we were supposed to be doing a UK tour and I had to cancel it because it's not serious, but it's um, it was serious for my vision. I had to have an eye operation because of glaucoma in my in one eye, just in one eye. And I had to have a, a mechanical in, implant put in there. And it had a six to seven week recovery period. So at the last minute, I had to cancel that. And that just gave me the seven weeks I needed before going to the States. But that's been postponed until next year at the same time. So next spring, we'll, we'll be doing a UK tour. Great, great. Well, look, I can't wait to see that. And, um, and also to hear the new album. So in terms of new album, when's that going to be out? When will we be able to hear those songs? It's being mastered on April the 12th in America and then we've got to sort out what uh, whoever's going to take it in the UK I think in the US things are uh, more advanced then it'll be out but there won't be such a rush in, in the UK although I'd like it to be out as soon as possible everywhere actually to be honest and I can't wait for it to come out in America when we're touring at some point you know we've got this tour in America for five weeks and we come back for about a month and we've got another five week tour of America and Canada and then we come back for a few weeks then we've got a tour of Scandinavia Germany and Austria and then that's it for the year basically. And then the next one after that will be the UK. I mean, Colin and I are going to be 77 years old. <laughs> That's bloody crazy. Well, Paul's about to go on tour. At the time of recording, we're, like I say, we're days away from Mr. Weller going on tour. Actually, probably the same, roughly the same start date as your one. And um, there must, I mean, you, that bug, that sort of, there's something in you that just, you absolutely love that. As much as that must be bloody exhausting, I would imagine. You can't stop that, can you? Well, the actual tedium of touring the actual mechanics of being in in a vehicle for maybe five or six hours a day and then having a whole eight hour day in front of you when you get there to do with sound checks to do with everything else that's involved and then the gig that is as wearing and as tedious as it was when i was 18 that was Mm. really tedious and hard but the actual hour and a half to two hours that you're on stage particularly if you've got a good audience which we tend to have in america now is it, as I said right at the beginning of the interview, it's so rejuvenating and re-energising. It's, it's a privilege to still be part of that. And as long as Colin and I feel well enough, we've got to be careful now, obviously, just because we're getting a lot older. But, I mean, we, we feel pretty good at the moment. So, you know, fingers crossed. I hope it all goes according to plan. This has been so lovely to spend time with you. I have a couple of final questions for you before you yeah. go. So this is the Paul Weller Fan Podcast. You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the style council or solo. What are you going to go with? It's a very hard choice, actually, because there are so many phases in Paul's career. But I'm going to choose a solo one. You do something to me. I actually put that uh, recently. Billboard asked me, and along with lots of other people, to list my top 50 uh, list of singles of all time and that they made a final list out of that and i chose you do something to me as one of the tracks on that why that one what's so special about that one for you i don't know i i just love it i mean as i said it's a very hard choice to compare something like that with star or uh that's entertainment is they're ridiculously different you know but good on him for that it's just beautifully constructed beautifully played beautifully sung you know I, it's just a great song it's something that's always connected me i remember the first time i heard that i absolutely loved it so it could be other songs but mm. that's the one i'm going to choose the um as a keys man i guess there's that connection too i remember you mentioned earlier on like oh, i think around stanley road for me it was like i didn't know that paul could play the piano at all and you were suddenly watching this gig and then suddenly yeah he puts the guitar down wanders over to the piano and starts playing that one it's such a lovely album and i didn't realize until recently that Stanley Road had so many guests on it, like Stevie Winwood, you know, and, and Noel Gallagher and some some great people. It's a lovely album. There's just something about that album that's it's very stripped down. It's very simple, but the groove on it is great. The soul within it is great, and the the songs are great. It just just really really works. So that could be my. I mean, I I don't, I don't know what a favourite album is it, they, because they 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 occupy different spaces. What you love today might change tomorrow as well, and that. But although Paul's been pretty clear that his favourite album all the time, all the way through, every time he's interviewed, is your one. <laughs> I know, bless him. He's been such a help to us, you know, in this country particularly. He really has because he's been very forthcoming, you know, always with that enthusiasm, and he's he's stayed in love with music, and he's still got that original drive and enthusiasm and energy that he had right at the beginning for the right reasons 
you know, he's not doing it to cash in. He's doing it because that's what fulfills his life. And, and, you know, and I think that's a fantastic thing. It's very fresh. He's, he's a, He's a lovely, generous guy. He really is. Rod, final question then. Um, so the purpose of this podcast is not least to talk to amazing people like yourself who have these incredible careers and, and connections with Paul, but it's also for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. If it happens, and my goodness me, we're up to like episode 90 odd now, so it must happen at some well, point, surely. Um, if it happens, when it happens, what should I talk to him about? Oh, God. What should you talk about? I think you should talk about I mean, if you wanted to reference me at all, I would say, you know, one of the things that I repeat to you that I said earlier was that when I get involved in creating music, the thing that turns me on always is getting the glimmer of an idea, being able to follow it through and to hear it start working and then maybe to work with someone else it's usually with colin for me because i would always work with colin make sure that it suits how he feels and and his voice and i'm pretty good at knowing what the golden notes in his range and everything are now so you know i i know a few things like that but we will always work to try and get excited about a germ of an idea and see it develop and using the excitement of that and i think that paul is the same and i think that's the reason for his having been in so many different styles of music in a way but Always the common factor, I think, is him wanting to feel the joy and excitement of seeing something musical in many different areas and, you know, not being frightened to find that he's involved himself throughout his life in, say, you know, if he discovered jazz or even some classical music and including those things and getting excited about the way that he feels they develop his musical personality. And I think there aren't that many people, musicians, who who have got that. And I'm vain enough to think that I've got it. I I mean, when I started out, I didn't think of of us doing Shoes Not There as anything but being the sort of, in inverted commas, the Beatles. But in fact, people have often said, people from The Birds and Pat Metheny, they've talked about the piano playing on that, being modal, and having a lot of jazz overtones. I never thought of that at the time, but it's because I'd listened to so much Miles Davis. Even while I was turned on completely by Elvis singing Lordy Miss Claudie, I would still be just as equally turned on by listening to a bit of Stravinsky or a bit of Miles, you know. And I think that Paul has got that enveloping, you know, he gets excited by music and he doesn't try and milk those influences, but they're there in his personality. And I think they come out in his personality when he's being honest and developing a musical idea. So if that means anything, I see that, if I'm right, as something that Paul's got that I identify with because it's something that I've always had as well. Love it. That's one of my favourite answers yet. (laughs) Rob, this has been so lovely. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, man. Pleasure. Thank you. Well, there you go. My thanks once again to Rod Argent. What an incredible career and back catalogue of amazing music and a real pleasure to have him as a guest on the podcast. You can find more information in the show notes for this episode on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, you can show your support in a number of ways. Number one, you can buy me a virtual coffee or check out our exclusive merchandise. Just head to the store section of my website. Number two, you can leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and follow as well. And number three, you can share a link to the podcast on your social media channels. It all helps to spread the word. You'll find me on social media as well. Get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook, Paul Weller Fan Podcast. In the next episode, another legendary figure in the music industry joins me on the Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I am joined by promoter Tim Parsons to talk about his days with the Jam and the Style Council. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 